0: Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also, look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honors to this episode. Now, let us start defending the Eagles. Yes, the Eagles. <music> Jeff Lebowski got thrown out of a taxi cab for protesting the driver's decision to play the Eagles' peaceful, easy feeling after the dude had just been beaten up and tossed out of a party. He never actually told us that the Eagles were terrible or that the band sucked. Yet, of all the scenes, lines, and references to pour from the Coen Brothers cult classic film, The Big Lebowski, that one may be the one that seeped most into our culture, even among folks who haven't even seen the movie. We'll get into exactly how Lebowski's statement of frustration has been misinterpreted later on, but needless to say, neither of your resident curmudgeons think the Eagles suck or deserve the consternation that has come their way for decades. In fact, you could say the Eagles were the Foo Fighters of previous generations, but we think that may be giving the Foo Fighters way, way too much credit. We sincerely feel the Eagles were an excellent, thoughtful band that deserves its place in the rarefied, deified air of superstar adoration. This is not a case of defending the indefensible. Rather, we are here to restore the band's standing among you the faithful outside iconoclastic listener. Our mission is always to arm you in keeping rock and roll's flame burning brightly and stoking its intensity with every new discovery and every new passion gained. Part of that is respecting just how influential Glenn Fry and Don Henley were in making country rock a thing that stuck outside of Nashville. Another part was how they thrived on the radio after turning away from country and into harder-edged, electric guitar-driven rock. Yet another part of it is respecting how Fry and Henley understood their limitations and invited some world-class collaborators into their orbit to make a better product. Maybe those guys were prickly and combative as people and as rock stars. Stories of the fights they picked and the smack they talked are legendary. As musicians, however, they suspended those egos and ultimately crafted a long string of marvelous classic singles and pumped out some great albums, too. So here's what we'll do in this episode. We will dispel some myths that have denigrated the bands for years, such as the notion that the band has milked a greatest hits album that masked their mediocrity. We'll discuss the band's origin story, which is among the most fascinating in rock and roll history. As part of that, we will revisit a Los Angeles scene in the early 1970s replete with all-time great songwriters, players, and singers, and how Don Henley and Glenn Frey seem to be friends and partners with a whole lot of them. We will talk about the individual members of the band, what they brought to the table, and how conflict shaped and reshaped and perhaps helped them improve tremendously by the end of the 70s. And yes, we'll talk about all those singles and how the energy of the songwriters created a diverse catalog, but we'll also run through the six albums the Eagles released in the 70s and share some insights that may surprise you. For instance, Hotel California is not really a concept album. And even if it was, it still wouldn't have been their best one. So Jeff Lebowski was spot on in his assessment of his particular situation. But the rest of us laughing at a bad evening got his vibe all wrong. Let us now speak in defense of the Eagles. Uh, anyway, here's a, here's a tidbit coincidentally that I learned for the, I never knew this before I uh, was researching for this episode. Did you know that Don Henley's the boys of summer was co-written by Mike Campbell of Tom, Tom Petty fame?
1: Really? That guy. Huh? I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Which actually fits into a lot of what we're going to talk about in this episode. Uh, I've long made a joke, uh, to myself that the Eagles are the Forrest Gump of uh, South Carolina, uh, South Ca- Southern California. Uh, <laughs> God damn it! My mind is in South Carolina. Uh, the, only, lo- the the only notable band from South Carolina is
1: Hootie and the Blowfish.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but anyway, as as I was trying to say, uh, I've been saying and making the joke for to myself for years that uh, the Eagles are the Forrest Gump of Southern California rock and roll because. They found themselves in all the right places with all the right people. And it was just this sort of uh, this, uh, you could say that it was fortuitous, but there's a reason that they ended up in the place that they were. Uh, And that's a story uh, that will tell uh, one of the more ambitious bands in rock and roll history. But they also had the chops and the work ethic to pull it off. I mean, they, they became, I don't know about if it's, we're, we're kind of aging out of it. They were a cultural joke uh, for a long time and maybe, uh, they still are, uh, they do not get their due and, uh, we will uh, dispel all of the myths, all of the shit talking, and we will set it straight. They, they were real, really a great band. One of my favorites of all time, actually.
1: Yes. And we will get into the Eagles very soon, but before that we need to inform people what's going on in our parallel universe where rock music is still a thing. Right, Chris?
0: It is. That is indeed our mission. Uh, We are now uh, putting that rip in the space-time continuum. Uh, We're going over to the other side. It's it's actually a wonderful, wonderful parallel universe and a wonderful world. Uh, The rock and roll that deserves its props and deserves its limelight actually is in the limelight and on the covers of the Rolling Stone and in the stadiums. And are being revered. Uh, You know, this is not uh, the place. Uh, Basically, let's just put it this way: Uh, Kanye West and Taylor Swift do not. uh, They might live in a parallel universe, but they are not on the Mount Rushmore uh, over here. And so we get to uh, have fun and put who the folks we believe are uh, on the the Mount Rushmore of parallel universe of the moment. And so that said, uh, Arturo, uh, who will you be uh, talking about? And whose album will you be talking about uh, on this uh, edition of the Parallel Universe? This is an album by an
1: artist slash band, really it's one guy, uh, called Pink Mountain Tops, and their new album, Peacock Pools. Now, mm-hmm. since 2005, the Vancouver band Black Mountain has been a staple favorite in underground rock with their brand of doomy, psychedelic hard rock. Pink Mountain Tops is singer-songwriter and Black Mountain main man Stephen McBean's side project, where he tends to get experimental and explore other genres such as electro pop, glam rock, spiky punk, and new wave, acid folk, and even progressive rock. Actually, calling Pink Mountain Tops a side project is a bit disingenuous because now there are just as many. Pink Mountain Tops albums five, as there are Black Mountain albums. Um, Nevertheless, Black Mountain is what McBean is generally known for. And on the latest Pink Mountain Tops album, McBean's restless eclecticism has never been more evident. Uh, With its fetching, anthemic guitar riff, Nicky goes sudden soars into Britpop sing-along territory with its bouncy string arrangement. Blazing Eye dives headlong into the land of Depeche Mode with its pounding drum machines and uh, its swaths of synthesizers. Shake the Dust revels in trippy art rock territory with its drumbeat imitating an almost Chemical Brothers-esque techno beat, its slinky bassline, its processed guitars, and its breakdown in the middle where McBean delves into spoken word psychedelia. Uh, Lights of the City even delves into 1980s Reagan era optimistic, shiny pop rock with its mm-hmm. uh, corny ass chorus of you've got the power deep in your soul. Uh, it's a testament to McBean's songwriting chops that it does not wander into foreigner or REO speed wagon territory. Uh, it isn't a perfect album. It starts with a seriously misguided psych-pop cover of Black Flag's Nervous Breakdown, and uh, All This (laughs) Death Is Killing Me is a sorely underproduced stab at shitty 1980s metal. Nevertheless, there are enough tasty nuggets on Peacock Pools to not only recommend it, but to have it hopefully be a gateway for people out there into Stephen McBean's world of rock, especially if it turns you on to the awesome discography of Black Mountain.
0: Chris? No, I agree with you. Uh, This is sort of the uh, Stephen McBean kind of showing that there is uh, a method to the madness of Black Mountain and that he does have this vocabulary. I mean, when he rolls out of bed in the morning, he's just rocks. He, yeah. he, he rocks when he brushes his teeth. He he, he rocks when he's uh, driving to the studio. I mean, yeah. the guy just rocks naturally, but uh, there's some good songs on this record. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. Like you, when you mentioned Depeche Mode, I smiled. I mean, there really is some industrial ish rock uh, on this. I think yeah. that, you know, the first half of the act, uh, the album actually is really good and really uh-huh. strong. Uh, so gotcha. All
1: right. So we transferred some pink Mountain Tops to
0: Chris's recommendation. Uh,
1: please keep it brief, Chris.
0: <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try. I okay. So I am now recommending the album uh, by Black Midi called Hellfire. Uh, I like Black Midi, and yeah, you know, on the last uh, couple of episodes, or at least last episode, I've been lamenting lately that this has been a year of pretty good records that there hasn't been a whole lot that I can be enthusiastic about. So even when I'm talking about, you know, what the, uh, some of these bands, uh, some of these young bands, that it's been sort of not damning with faint praise, but just kind of, Oh, this is interesting. Well, in this case, I am wholeheartedly recommending that folks listen to uh, this record. Uh, wacky. It is a wacky record. Uh, it is a, a fun listen, uh it's kind of ridiculous but in a good way um it's uh so how would i, uh, I describe uh, this band so they are uh, uh like a lot of uh bands that sort of are getting attention out of uh, england uh, uh in the last couple of years they are an art school band uh they are uh, unapologetically uh pretentious now uh, we covered another band like that uh, earlier this year Uh, On uh, this podcast and uh, we it was one of those rare occasions in the parallel universe where Arturo and I either praise the same album or take a dump on the same record. And uh, we did that earlier this uh, year with this band called Black Country New Road, uh, which uh, for whatever reason, because of, you know, the the British uh, press these days has terrible tastes. Well, they were all over uh, loving this record and which we're like, wait a second. This is just a bunch of horseshit because uh, these were kids who uh, they are on record on a, uh, you know, basically unironically is uh, saying the arcade fires. The funeral is like one of their uh, northern stars as a as an influence, as a band, which is just yee ye, yeah. Uh, and, and so, so here's the difference between them and black MIDI. Okay. So they yes, they are doing these sort of, you know, seven minute long, sort of windy bendy, uh, you know, sort of three songs in one kind of like weirdness and, uh, uh, doing that type of thing, but they have much, much cooler influences in, in how they're doing it. And, uh, they also in what they're doing they're clearly even if they do have some things to say which i'll get into in a sec they're clearly having a whole lot of fun and not taking themselves all that seriously unlike uh, black country new road uh, who are trying to be grand artistes and trying to make every song the best song ever nope that's not these guys so imagine this imagine that Oysterhead. Which is the super uh, band, kind of the, uh, the super group that uh, was uh, comprised of Trey Anastasio of Fish, Stuart Copeland, the drummer from The Police, and Les Claypool of Primus. And so they reconvene, and then you give them a rotating cast of guests, including Mark E. Smith of The Fall, uh, the uh, lead singer of this band. Jordy Greep uh, sounds a hell of a lot like Mark E. Smith, and that's probably not an accident. Uh, also, uh, bring back a, a band from twenty years ago. Some of you may remember, and Arturo, I don't know if you remember these guys, the Locust, hmm. uh, which basically their whole shtick was, "What if uh, insects did a uh, did a rock record?" And and so it's this very sort of like like basically like like, like lightning molt, lightning bolt and even more math. Uh, it just doesn't make it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So Marky Smith, the Locust, Tom Jones. Th- there is a lot of kind of uh, schmaltz. Uh, That creeps up in here and then other random artists too. Uh, There's a little bit of alt country that sneaks in into the mix. Sometimes Uh, James Hetfield. So, you know, they do get into some sort of aggro, almost speed metal uh, kind of riffage, but it's just, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, It's uh, all these genres mashed up and it's these four to eight minute long, just blasts of energy and weirdness and, Surreality, I mean, genuine surrealism in some of these lyrics. And uh, they also, this album, again called Hellfire, uh, it's their third album, actually. They've been around for a little bit. uh, And the best song on this and the best song I've heard all year is called Welcome to Hell. And uh, this is, uh, you know, it's a little bit strange when you're listening to this at first. You know, they're all over the place. uh, But then all of a sudden, Primus. It's almost like, you know, one of these Les Claypool kind of like weird uh, math rock uh, sort of muso uh, bass riffs that comes in. And then it proceeds to uh, go a little psychedelic, then a little speed metal and then back to Primus. And all the while it has this really kind of compelling lyric. I mean, the thing about it is Geordie Greep's got one of these uh, British voices, uh, not quite as cockney as some of the other uh, folks that do the spoken word kind of thing. But this one is a genuinely uh, surrealist take on war and violence and uh, this idea of, of the uh, whether the army has any sort of glamour. And if it does, uh, not really. And so uh, really compelling. Listen, fun uh, and wacky. Arturo, I am going to take a wild guess that you completely disagree with me.
1: Yeah, this is the single worst album you've recommended in the history of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> this is this is pretty much, um, it's unlistenable, impenetrable, needlessly complex, prog rock rubbish of the highest order. Uh, Black MIDI is a testament to the fact that most of the time, I would say 80, 85% of the time, musicians slash artists coming from Music school, like these guys graduated from, usually make the worst, most boring, unlistenable shit music ever. Um, One of the, the, the results of the death and decline of the music industry. Okay, yeah, artists have more freedom to do whatever they want. Um, They have uh, less for uh, less control over their ability to make music and put out music. It's all democratized. Okay, that's all good. But one of the drawbacks is that back in the old days, musicians like Black Midi would be nothing more than the session musicians for artists who could write songs. (laughs) <laughs> and and what we get with the decline in the death of the record industry as it is is bands like Black Midi, really good musicians who are really way up their ass with their prog rock pretentiousness, all trying to show off how good they are with their musicianship without having any real songwriting chops to back it up.
0: So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy-bendy yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens back in 2000 and commits it to quote-unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston and Arturo lives in South Korea, so we are a worldwide affair which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. And we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music wheel of its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to Lost and Forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming. Lebowski, people have to remember, and you have to think about that scene uh, in the Coen Brothers movie. Again, he had just gotten thrown out of this, this party, this Hollywood party. And is he's, like you said, it is a shitty uh, mood. And I think a lot of people would agree that if they're having that kind of day or in that kind of shape, yes, the last song you would want to listen to is peaceful, easy feeling uh, (laughs) by the Eagles. And so in context, it's a really, really funny scene, but it is not an overriding indictment. It is not a verdict of uh, guilty by reason of being shitty uh, at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the big Lebowski has certainly ruined the Eagles
0: for millennials and Gen Z music fans. Definitely
1: has. I, I think.
0: yeah, right. And so that's one of the reasons that we're, we're doing this episode. So with that said, we have five myths that we are going to counter and Arturo will talk about these after I set them up. Okay. So Myth number one, the Eagles were a dweeby safe band that made dweeby safe music and walked a dweeby safe line. Arturo, counter that one.
1: Wrong. If you look at the Eagles discography, and what I mean is listen to them in a vacuum and mentally take them out of the context of laid back 1970s LA country rock that they get so stigmatized with. This also requires you, the listener, to to take yourself out of yourself and listen to the Eagles outside of their cultural context. If you do that, you will find several songs that not just rock with some serious and authentic aggression, in a good way, but quite a few tracks that sonically and experimentally push the envelope quite a bit. We'll go into some of these songs in more detail when we dive into each Eagles album individually. But, for example... Victim of Love from Hotel California is a heavy, snarling rocker. The song, one of these nights from the album of the same name, sees the Eagles doing a full-on foray into a genre that was just starting to emerge in the middle of the decade, and that is disco. In fact, the Eagles' fusion of rock and disco came a full three years before Blondie and the Rolling Stones did so and four years before Kiss had one of their biggest ever hits with a disco rock song. Eat your heart out there. The weird off-kilter rhythms and shifting chord changes of the song On the Border, again off an album of the same name, is ambitious enough in its musicality that it actually flirts with a progressive rock. Uh, you have the Greeks Don't Want No Freaks from the Love Long it. Run album, which is a 1950s-style rocker glossed up as new wave pop. No, the Eagles were most definitely not like America or Bread or any other wussy country and folk rock band of this era. Definitely not.
0: Uh, on that uh, on that note, uh, so— well,
1: well, before we go to the next myth, we're, let's, stick, let's stay on this first myth a little bit, that the Eagles were wussy and dweeby. Let's go into each Eagle member, all right, okay. and let's kind of like type them for what they really are. Sure. Glenn Frey, who was Glenn Frey, Chris?
0: Okay, Glenn Frey is a singularly ambitious uh, character in the history of rock and roll. Uh, grew up in uh, Detroit. He had this. He had a real swagger to him and a real belief. Uh, but he was he was like the one guy in the band that always looked like he was having fun. Uh, you know, he was uh, sort of the, uh, hey, why not uh, kind of guy. He, uh, at a very early age, became friends with Bob Seeger, also from Detroit, and found his way into playing acoustic guitar and singing backup on "Rambling Gamblin' Man. Uh, he also uh, backed Kenny Rogers. Uh, right. and it was Kenny Rogers that actually brought Fry, uh, to, uh, Los Angeles. Fry, and so,
1: Fry being from Detroit was the lover and the fighter of the band.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. He was the lover and the fighter and, uh, he, he gets great. You know, Henley is definitely, well, we'll talk about Henley in a second, that there's a contrast between these two guys where, you know, Fry is, he's unapologetic. Uh, he is, uh, He's confident. He is not afraid to say, you know, he knew it once he knows he doesn't have limitations anymore, then he's yeah. like, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to forward, you know, uh, kind of bowl forward. Uh, but you know, he's the opportunist, uh, he's the ambitious guy, uh, but also again, just very, very smart. Um, and he also was like the guy along with Henley, he was the business. He had the sense of here's what we want to do. Here's how we think we can get there. And, uh, you know, let's not coast, you know, it's like, let's not be when anybody else thinks we should be. Uh, even if he didn't have an idea of what that was, he didn't want to be in, uh, he didn't want to be boxed in. And so he's really the spirit. Uh, we wouldn't have, uh, the Eagles if it wasn't for Glenn Fry. Uh, and, uh, you know, just this sort of the spirit, Uh, that, you know, he, he was like the rock and roll spirit personified for sure.
1: Absolutely. All right. The, the other important Eagle, Glenn Fry was the first of the two really important Eagles. The second one, obviously, and as most people know, he had the most solo success, Don Henley, the resident poet, and frankly, kind of a dickhead.
0: Yeah. uh, So Don Henley uh, is, uh, you know, I don't think he, gets more flack than he probably deserves. Uh, he is a really gifted uh, person, really. And he's one of these guys, and I relate to him because he's one of these guys who's just so naturally eloquent and is such a consummate overthinker that he makes you think he's full of shit 80% of the time. <laughs> and so, you know, whereas, whereas Fry is the one who's looks like he's having the, all the fun. Henley comes across as a guy who never had any fun ever, and mm-hmm. you know he you know he's the one that uh, is sort of the developers of the themes. He's the he's this the one that questions. Uh, he is also uh, he's an introvert. Uh, it, you know, rock stardom never came naturally to him. Uh, I think when you listen to him sing and you look at his lyrics and you you uh, see his interviews and everything like that, nothing came naturally to him. I mean, Fry things just came naturally to him. Fry was, you know, he was just like pl- plugged in. Whereas Henley was, again, I think more, he was, I think more naturally shy. And I think that he had to work uh, harder uh, at it. Uh, but he, he's from Texas. Uh, he's from Northeastern Texas, Linden, Texas, which is in this corridor. It was a f- kind of a fascinating touring uh, corridor there, uh, Arkansas, you know, sort of the deep South, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and then into, into Texas, down towards Houston, and then over, uh, towards El Paso where a lot of blues artists came through, a lot of country artists came through. And, uh, you know, there were some, uh, some famous uh, folks from around there. It's a one light town, but it had a really vibrant, uh, music scene. And so he kind of grew up with that. He ends up in LA too. Uh, and best thing that ever happened to him was becoming friends with Fry. And I think the two of them just sort of played off uh, each other uh, very well. And one other thing I'll say about him, I think one of the reasons he gets uh, that bad reputation is yes, he's prickly in interviews, but he's also one of these guys who will, uh, you know, he's known as being very, very savvy business wise. uh, And he understands, uh, you know, the music. He is one of these wine and cheese liberals that has, you know, every cause known to man. Uh, He obviously is, is driven uh, sort of by the success and by the professionalism, but he'll also be the one that swears. It's all about the music. (laughs) And
1: and also of the two of the two main Eagles, he was the one who had the strongest country influence being from Texas.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. And both in his voice and just in his sensibilities. I mean, he, he, you know, basically if like, Glenn Fry and one of the guys that we're going to talk about next kind of brought that twang. Uh, Henley brought the that sort of country poetry that sort of, uh, you know, uh, my, my woman left me and now the world is a more twisted place because of it. Now let's think about that. Uh, that. That really is where kind of what Henley's thing was all about. Right.
1: All right. Speaking of country, the next Eagle we'll briefly discuss, the Eagle's original lead guitarist, Bernie Ledden, the prodigious dork with the banjo and country soul.
0: Yeah, uh, basically. Yeah, that is one way to put it. Uh, Bernie Ledden, uh, he had uh, a tremendous pedigree. Uh, he was a member of Dillard and Clark, and he was a member of the Flying Burrito Brothers uh, for uh, two albums. Uh, he was a childhood friend with Chris Hillman of the Birds, who was mm-hmm. actually a member of both groups. Uh, and he was a r- really talented guy, multi-instrumentalist. Yes. Did play the banjo. Uh, he was a lead guitarist. Uh, the, the arrangement was Leden played the lead guitars on the songs that Fry song and Fry did the lead guitar on the songs that Leighton sung. Uh, and Leighton at this point, he was when he first hooked up with these guys, when they were first starting the band, he was a more developed, more mature songwriter. And uh, that came in handy because uh, they weren't prolific enough to fill albums by themselves, Henley and Fry and their friends. So Ledden kind of supplied them with the album tracks, uh, some of which were absolutely great. Um, and, you know, it, he, again, he's sort of the, uh, the victim of the evolution. Uh, so he kind of defines. he's, I would say he def- kind of defines the sound of those first couple of, uh, and, and definitely the aesthetic of those first couple of records. Right. But, but then by like the, the fourth record, uh, in he's like, kind of, he's, he's made himself obsolete
1: by from, the third record, by on the border.
0: really. Yeah. Well, he, but even then he's still kind of hanging on, but yeah, definitely by the fourth album, one of these nights, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of the odd man out. And so, uh, and he's also the guy that was never the progenitor or the uh, the, the one who gestated a hit. Uh, he has a co-writing uh, credit on Witchy Woman. Otherwise, uh, he's the one guy that never got basically, quote-unquote, his own hit out of the band. Mm-hmm. You know? right. So, oh well.
1: All right. So the next person. The person who... Got introduced later in the band as the second lead guitarist to make up, uh, if Bernie Ledin was a little too country, the guy they brought in made up for the rock, and that is Don Felder, the guitar dude guy whose mere musk eventually drove Ledin away. And also, Felder is the guy who sued Henley and Fry for years over financial disputes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, in a band... Uh, you know, I said earlier that, you know, Fry was the one that looked like he was having the most fun. Uh, everybody else was kind of a miserable prick. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Fry was confrontational, but he was not a miserable prick. The rest of them kind of were. And Felder might have been the most miserable of the bunch. It's funny that we say that, you know, that Damir Musk uh, uh, chased Ledden out of the band. Well, Felder's was Ledden's buddy. Basically, Ledden is the one that kind of introduced uh Fry and uh, Henley, they needed somebody to play a slide part on one of the songs from uh, On the Border. And so they bring in uh, Felder and they're like, whoa, okay, that guy can play his ass off. And so uh, hence he ends up becoming uh, the the guy that kind of raises their rock, uh, credibility. I say raises it because he didn't, he's not the one that got him there, but at least he had the credibility. Uh, dude could shred. Uh, are definitely at that point, there was something in the water in the Jacksonville, Florida area. Uh, and during this time, you know, yeah. the, these, these early boomers, uh, because yeah, I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, you had, uh, the dudes from Leonard Skinner, you had Rick, Ricky Medley, of the mm. outlaws who eventually, you know, obviously became a Skynyrd guy. And then uh, Felder was from there too. So you had all of these guys and like Felder was that kind of player that he wouldn't have been out of place in Skynyrd at all right, right. with some of the stuff he did. Uh, but yeah, no, he, he was just, uh, he was a very self-serious guy. Uh, he, he wanted to be more talented or he wanted to be more influential than he actually was. Uh, he had a lot of ideas, but wasn't a songwriter. Uh, he was a technician, but not really an arranger. Uh, and he had this notion that, you know, when you're in a band, you know, it's just five guys uh, jamming out that they're not actually a business. Uh, sorry, Don, uh, you actually are. And uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of people that would say that when these guys are making a gazillion dollars that you should be making just as much as Don Henley and Glenn Fry uh
2: no <laughs> yeah,
1: no one's gonna support you on that there donny Felder. nope nope all right now the next eagle who became an eagle is the one who eventually replaced bernie ledden as the second lead guitarist joe walsh formerly of the james gang the wild man who made the band well wilder also the guy with unassailable rocker bona fides before joining
0: yeah, absolutely. So Walsh, uh, is one of the consummate, uh, he's kind of the American version of, of Keith Moon. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's one of these like, like wild and crazy guys that, uh, drank a lot, did a lot of cocaine, threw a lot of couches out of 14th floor windows, uh, and, you know, did a lot of this crazy shit. So he had, uh, rock bonafides. fides. Uh, he obviously, if, even if you listen to on the border, and some of the stuff there, he is, was an obvious influence on uh, Hemley and Fry in terms of, if we were to have a rock sensibility, it would be Walsh's. So, you know, they're obviously uh, influenced, you know, Walsh obviously, uh, you know, got to start uh, fronting the James gang when he was real young. Yeah. Uh, and then he did a, a few uh, solo records, uh, you know, and you know, stuff like Rocky Mountain Way uh, came out of that. Also had one of the best album titles of all time. The smoker you drink, the player you get. Yeah, uh, which,
1: my, 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 my favorite James Gang song is that song Funk 49 with that awesome oh, yeah. riff. Wow, wow, wick, 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 wow, wow, which Rage Against the Machine slyly kind of ripped off a little yeah. bit for, uh, yeah. for Bulls on Parade. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've always been a bigger fan of Walk Away by uh, mm. the James Gang. Yeah. That's uh, in terms of riffs. So, you know, Walsh just, uh, and, and he's interesting because uh, he had he was a really insecure guy and he's said this in interviews and we'll talk a little bit about this later. Uh he was really insecure guy as guys who are like that who get that hook to booze and drugs tend to be. Yeah. But so he does these like really kind of clever, like goofy songs on his own. But the, the two songs that he wrote for the Eagles were probably the most orthodox songs, and you could tell he was trying to win the approval of Henley and Fry and write right. Eagles songs. Yeah, uh, so that's kind of fascinating to me because he's uh, he's the established rock star. Well before these guys, he's the one that gives them the rock credibility. But he comes in and he really just wants to be those guys. So and those
1: and those guys wanted to be him.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know it's so. Hey, you know synergy. There you go.
1: Oh yeah, and then we go into. Well, very briefly, uh, and we'll end uh, the, the band profile segment before we go into the second myth, because really, the band profiles really uh, are important. Misters Randy Meisner and Timothy B. Schmidt, the first two bassists in Poco, who became the only two bassists in the Eagles— and Timothy B, Timothy B Schmidt has also the, the the recognition of being the primary writer of quite possibly the Eagles' wussiest hit. I can't tell you why,
0: which is still <laughs> a great song. But hey, if, if they are if you are going to call them wussy or if you are going to call them dweeby, uh, that would be the one song that you would point to uh, before right. all else. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. These were the two normal guys in the band too. Yeah. Uh, like basically like we we said uh Schmidt followed Meisner. Meisner was the founding bassist, he was the original bassist in Poco. Uh basically uh Richie Furay uh, pissed him off uh mm. something bad uh right at the beginning and so he didn't he he was he quit even before the first album was released. Right. So Schmidt Schmidt comes in does like 9 records with Poco. Well, when Meisner is now it's time for him to quit the Eagles, like literally Fry said, well, let's hire Timothy B. Schmidt because hey, he's He's replaced Randy Meisner before. We know he can do it. Yeah, uh, and so it's just kind of funny. So you know, it gets you know, it gets the break of his life uh, there. But no, these two guys, they were, they were family guys. You know, Meisner was a, was basically a corn poke from Nebraska. Uh, these were the family guys. And I can just imagine Schmidt. So, you know, Meisner basically quits because he has stage fright and he doesn't necessarily want to be a rock star and can't really handle it. And he's, you know, he's the nice family guy. So Schmidt comes in now. He's the nice family guy, but he also doesn't have the, what now, seven years of history right. with these guys just as they're starting to blow themselves out and become like big rock stars and, you know, really struggle with tension and pressures and cocaine and all that. And he must've been like, what the fuck is going on here? So (laughs) anyway, so like, so yep, the normal, the normal, uh, uh, sort of light guys. Uh, one last thing I'll say, Randy Meisner, when he dies on his tombstone, I'm pretty sure it'll probably read, take it to the limit one more time. (laughs)
1: we're going to talk a lot about that song very soon. Sure. Anyway, now that we got those band profiles out of the way, that really kind of helped dispel that
0: first myth. Yep. Myth number two. What is the second myth, Chris? Okay. So we talked about how these guys are not actually dweeby. Now let's uh, set up myth number two, that the Eagles were merely the song of their all time top selling greatest hits record, as well as the song, California. Nope. And that is where I think a lot of the scorn comes from. It's just people being fucking lazy.
1: Lazy and being haters and just not being very knowledgeable. If you ever get to listen to a good classic rock radio station or even a website that serves as an online radio station, You'll hear many Eagles songs that aren't on their greatest hits album. In the previous uh, Mythbuster, I mentioned uh, Victim of Love and On the Border. How about James Dean, the rip roaring rocker off of the On the Border album? That same album also has the Eagles' emotionally splendid version of Tom Waits' Old 55 yep. uh, Good Day in Hell. From that same album is one of Don Henley's most rocking, defiantly angry songs before his anger gave way to cynicism. Um, I already spoke about the album On the Border, which I think is one of their best albums. But the album Desperado, is the whole album Desperado, is a beautiful, cohesive, multi-textured, and surprisingly eclectic concept album about, what as you alluded to earlier, Chris, the price to pay of living life outside of society's norms. It's a very yep. symp- sympathetic, empathetic record in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, they they really did have this sort of empathy for uh, the the bad guy, uh, you know, everybody thinks is the bad guy, but also yeah. uh, empathy for the downtrodden, empathy for uh, the right. victimized and the uh, the alienated, and you know some other uh, songs uh, that come to to mind: uh, those shoes, uh, mm-hmm. outlaw man. Uh, and even some of Bernie, uh, uh, Ledden's, uh, stuff, uh, yeah. you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but, uh, on, uh, one of these nights we are turned on to Prague bluegrass. And so there is a lot to, uh, enjoy, uh, about the Eagles just outside of those nine songs.
1: All right, Chris, what's that third myth?
0: Okay. Myth number three, the Eagles were just another Los Angeles band who lived on the road bitching about Los Angeles, and life on the road.
1: Yeah, this myth really pisses me off. Uh, Eagles' songs were so much more than just about Los Angeles. The sweeping epic final track off of Hotel California, The Last Resort, is, basically, song. is mm-hmm. basically an American history lesson in song, detailing the expansion and settlement of the western half of the United States before it turns into a commentary on gentrification and environmental degradation. Witchy Woman, contrary to popular belief, is not a misogynist song, but is actually an ode to Zelda Fitzgerald, the wild, hard-partying wife of legendary American novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald. The entire concept album Desperado doesn't have the city of Los Angeles appear even once in a single song. Nope. I can go. I can go on and on.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, ab- absolutely. <laughs> and if you remember, the, I mean, the last song they ever did was "The Sad Cafe," which is just yeah. a very universal, uh, you know, this idea of uh, you can either move on or you can uh, you can kind of you know dwell in the past, and this this kind of uh, you know life has its uh, its first acts it's second acts and third acts. And sometimes people get stuck at the end of the second act. Uh, and so there's like you said, there's really some profound and almost sort of, uh, psychedelic or like even literate stuff. I think that, uh, Don Henley, uh, yes. I mean, there are some, uh, I think Henley became the dominant personality in the band. I think that this is pretty inarguable in the last couple of records. And yes, there is a lot of, um, uh, lamentation and uh, bitterness uh, in the uh, the lyrics. I think a lot of this probably just comes from plain old life in the fast lane. You know, because, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, or like even new kid, new kid in town. I mean, those are sort of uh, kind of seen as sort of uh, LA uh, kind of LA bashing uh, songs. Right. But no, just way more, way more depth. And it, I, to me, they're more about the American. They wrote more about the American myth. And yeah. the demythologizing of the Mitzi. Hey, it's getting meta here. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just um, no. They 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 were just really just excellent uh, in terms of they were thoughtful and they were deep and they had an expanse to what they were doing.
1: Now, myth number four, Chris, what is that?
0: So, myth number four is, uh, and Arturo briefly recap this, but. When people think of the early 70s in Los Angeles, uh, they think of a lot of uh, the Eagles' friends uh, who were act- all very talented. And so here comes the other myth. Uh, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, J.D. Souther, uh, Bob Seeger, and other folks in L.A. were more responsible for launching the Eagles to their high status than the Eagles were.
1: Yeah. All Linda Ronstadt did was provide Glenn Frey and Don Henley with an opportunity to make money on the road while gain some valuable touring experience. Yes, it was her idea for Don and Glenn to get Bernie Ledin in as lead guitarist, but she didn't get him for them. They went out and got him. Yes, Jackson Brown introduced David Geffen to Glenn Frey, but Geffen wouldn't have signed the Eagles to Asylum Records had he not liked what he heard especially someone like Geffen who was a very picky uh, a finicky listener uh, he was notorious for that sure. The Eagles earned their recording contract and they later earned their commercial success by breakneck touring building a following bit by bit and town by town and growing as so- and this is more, the most important point growing as songwriters to the point that they simply wrote better songs than any of their peers case closed.
0: Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And, you know, the only one that you might have a good argument against that one is with, is with Jackson Brown. Uh, and,
1: I, and I wouldn't, I, I think Jackson Brown was beneath these guys.
0: He, well, ultimately, uh, yes. I mean, he never did songs quite as good as Hotel California, but there's a wonderful, there's this wonderful documentary actually that you've turned me on to called it, uh, the history of the Eagles, uh, part one and part two. Where, uh, Fry uh, is talking about you know, his beginnings, uh, in Los Angeles and learning how to write songs. Well, he, he lived in an apartment and, uh, you know, he's a broke young guy, but Brown was even brokered than he was. And so <laughs> Brown is living in the basement apartment beneath Fry. And, uh, Fry said that he would hear, uh, uh, Brown working on his songs down there. And he learned how to write songs because he could hear Brown, through his floor like basically like you know kind of he would like play things like 20 25 30 times so just like kind of tweaking things and doing all of that and so but to your point yes they had all of these talented uh, folks that were vouching for them that maybe opened some doors that they uh, were associated with and right. uh, and i think that your point is like the most perfect one which is they won over david geffen who's you know famously dickish you know, yeah. <laughs> the, you know the, the guy that sued both Don Henley and Neil Young for making bad music. You know, so, <laughs> you know. I mean, so. I wish
1: I had the balls to do that with so many artists right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, exactly. So yeah, that's the idea. So, you know, just because they have talented, more, you know, again, more sort of deified uh, friends doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that they're second class. And in, right. in fact, yeah, they're right there with them.
1: Right. All right. And the final bullshit myth, number five, Chris.
0: Yes. And the final one is that the Eagles had no rock and roll backbone until Joe Walsh joined the band. I think we've already established that that's pretty much bullshit, but this idea that they weren't a rockin' or a they weren't a rock band or a rockin' band until crazy man Joe Walsh shows up.
1: Right. It, this is another stupid myth. All you have to do is listen to that first album with guitarist Don Felder on the border. It's the band's most rocking album start to finish. Felder may have been a bit of a dork, but he was a kick-ass guitarist who gave the Eagles a kick in the ass. And one of these nights, disco rock before any other band were doing disco rock. Fuck off, Eagles haters.
0: Oh yeah, and uh, one, one point to make about "On the Border," by the way, uh, strange but true. Felder is only on two songs, yeah, but he, you know, he has enough of an influence. Uh, on uh, the proceedings that yes, Len was edgier, Fry was edgier. And you got to remember that uh, this is a song or this is an album that had uh, a song by Tom Waits on it uh, called Old, Old 55. And story behind that is that Waits Wasn't even signed. He wasn't, you know, nobody knew of him. Uh, Fry just happened to hear or have access to a, there was a three song demo that Waits had floating around in LA. Uh, Fry just happened to hear it. And uh, I think like him and even, I think like it, in Geffen's uh, urging. Uh, they covered it, so yeah. I mean, that's that's bona fide. You know, if you need any proof that those guys were legit, they actually recognized Tom Waits before Tom Waits was a thing.
1: On this episode, Chris and I defended the discography and overall legacy of the Eagles. For the next two episodes. Yours truly, curmudgeons, will take on a less polarizing baby boomer band, but one whose recorded output deserves more attention than it gets. This is, of course, the Grateful Dead. They were THE pioneering jam band, whose reputation was built on their marathon concerts and improvisational explorations on stage. Countless podcasts by Deadheads for Deadheads are devoted to discussing their legendary live shows, but the Cremudgeon Rock Report will take a different tack and dive deep into their studio albums. Yes, folks, the Grateful Dead had some amazing all-time great albums, and they are most certainly worthy of discussion. So much so that we'll be devoting not one but two episodes to the Dead's studio output. Tune in next time as the Crummudgeon Rock Report presents The Grateful Dead in the Studio, A Legacy, Part 1.
0: We just debunked five myths about the Eagles. Uh, As we've said, at least they're one of my favorite bands of all time. And so we've established that these guys were uh, thoughtful, cerebral uh, Rocking guys that uh, that transcended uh, their time and place in some of the things that they did in their songs. Uh, they obviously uh, had an evolution. Uh, they they could do country, but they could do rock. And this is a story that you can also tell through their. We call it a discography now. I guess you could call it a catalog of albums.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: or back in the 1970s, uh, they released. Uh, in their first iteration, uh, six albums. uh, And all of them are very good to great. And they really show the story of how the band evolved. Let's talk about these six records. uh, Shall we, Arturo? Yes. What's the first one, Chris? Okay. So uh, they released their first record. And again, they've been floating out there backing up Linda Ronstadt, you know, kind of doing their own thing, uh, you know, uh, building their sound uh, on, uh, in the clubs, including the Troubadour. Now they're ready to release an album, and they come out with their first record, Eagles. It's self-titled. Uh, we should mention here, we call them the Eagles, but they are, their official name of the band is Eagles.
1: That'll never catch on. It's always going no. to be the
0: Eagles. <laughs> right, and, and it had to because Eagles just, that sounds dweeby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Eagles sounds cool. Eagles, yeah. just Weeby. So right. so here's their first record, and uh, it's their first uh, time out of the gate. And and so at this point, they're still uh, embracing uh, country rock. And the first song on this record is one of my favorites by them, Take It Easy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people, I'm sure that that you know it, Um it's one of the more effortlessly accessible songs of uh, of the 1970s. Uh, it has that built-in country twang, uh, one of the breeziest melodies, and it immediately shows one of the Eagles' greatest musical gifts. They had just beautiful, gorgeous harmony singing, yeah. uh, whether it was the voices uh, themselves or the energy they brought into them. I actually think that on the whole, their harmonies were much better than Crosby, Stills, Nash's uh, in in a lot of ways. Big
1: big talk right there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) I I think that on the whole, maybe it's not as powerful in some of the, the best spots. Like Deja Vu's got some really powerful stuff. But it's prettier, and it is gorgeous, and we, we get it right here on Take It Easy. That's right. Um, and so you get all this, and then you also get some meth crank level banjo, which is kind right. of a neat feat. Uh, and it has one of my favorite lyrics of all time. Uh, well, I'm running down the road, trying to loosen my load, I've got seven women on my mind, four that want to own me, two that want to stone me, one says she's a friend of mine. <laughs> uh, uh it may be okay, lightly misogynistic, but funny and just uh, evocative. And so that that that's the start. Uh, and then from there, this one also has Witchy Woman on it, which is the only song that Henley uh wrote on this uh on this album. What's worth mentioning that Henley it took him a little while to evolve and emerge as a songwriter, but once he did, boy did he. But uh here we have, you know, it's you know, it's just sort of a classic, just sort of little uh, sort of countryish little bitty uh, with some really nice uh with some really nice harmony yeah. uh, vocals on it uh, too. Let, Did-
2: let, let,
1: let me go into some of these songs.
0: Oh, sure. Go um, ahead.
1: like like you said, not surprisingly, their first album is their most countryfied one. Um yes, the three big hits: Take It Easy, Witchy Woman, Peaceful, Easy Feeling, they are here. But there are other gems too. Uh Randy Meisner pulls his weight in a big way with the haunting bluesy. Take the Devil, and the album closer, the rousing arena rock-ready stomper, Tryin'. Uh, many listeners will be surprised to know that the lovely shuffling country ballad Train Leaves Here This Morning was not only sung by guitarist Bernie Ledin, but was co-written by Ledin with the legendary former guitarist and singer from The Birds, Gene Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Jackson Brown wrote the groovy rocker Nightingale, but you'll have a hard time convincing anyone that he could have sung this song with the same soul and gusto that Don Henley did, or that Brown's band could have tackled the song in the same muscular way. The Eagles did all in all, I I agree with you. It's a terrific debut album that along with those patented heavenly harmony vocals showed everything that was good about the Eagles right from the start.
0: So after, uh, they did Eagles and they established themselves from there. They, they had some modest hits. Uh, they got some attention and, uh, you know, they, uh, were, were set up, uh, to succeed. Next, uh, came Desperado. And, uh, here is a case of Glenn Fry and Don Henley feeling confident in their, uh, their developing talents as songwriters and as artists. And, uh, also as sort of LA, uh, wild men, sort of young guys, uh, in Los Angeles in rock and roll. And, uh, the story of Desperado is very simple. Uh, Glenn Fry is looking at, uh, he's got a fascination at that time with the old West and he's looking back and he says, you know what, these days rock and rollers might as well be like the Jesse James of this era. I mean, we, we might as well be the outlaws of the old, like akin to the outlaws of the old West And so they ran with that and said, you know, why don't we do a record where we have this notion of ourselves as Old West outlaws? And so uh, Desperado is born uh, from there. This actually is a concept record where it's, you know, sort of uh, bad guys versus lawmen and uh, also, uh, you know, tales of empathy and and caution uh, uh, on here. Uh, Obviously, the most famous song. Uh, and Arthur, you'll describe this. Uh, this is the title song, which Linda Ronstadt made uh, famous before these guys did. Uh, and just really talking about, uh, it's hard out here for an outlaw. I guess mm-hmm. is what you could really uh, call that one. And so, it's I think their most uh, orthodox and just it's it's their most uh, reverent countryish record. Uh, it's a beautiful concept record, very well executed. Uh, just just mar- marvelous to listen to it's an actual concept record you know people like to think of uh, their their most famous record hotel California's concept record nope that was not really conceptual. this one was Arturo tell us yeah. more about it
1: Yeah um, their first album. Came out in 1972. Had a bunch of hits, actually. Take it easy when actually top 10. Uh, the second album, just one year later, in 1973, they went super ambitious with this concept album. And what a powerful, moving concept album it is. The country rock is still present, but you can detect a much stronger whiff of traditional folk music throughout the record, as best heard in the Doolin-Dalton bluegrass instrumental segue and the beautiful waltz time Don Henley ballad Saturday night.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: what is an Eagles album without bassist Randy Meisner's yearning high pitched vocals. You get that with the, the shifty rhythms of the mid tempo certain kind of fool. David blue was a folk singer songwriter who was a contemporary uh, with Bob Dylan and Phil Oakes in New York's folk scene in the early 1960s. But in Glenn Fry's hands, Blues song Outlaw Man becomes a raging riff monster of a rocker. And of course, as you mentioned, Chris, there is the ballad of all ballads, the title track Desperado, a song that showed a true blossoming of the Fry-Henley songwriting partnership. It wasn't a big hit at the time, but it soon became a staple of the band's discography, thanks to, as you said, Linda Ronstadt's lovely version of it. Anyone who isn't moved by listening to this track for the first time, either as a heart of stone or just overall shitty taste in music, this is the Eagles' second best album, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and FYI, uh, I believe Desperado was the first song that Henley and Fry wrote just as Henley and Fry.
2: Mm.
0: Uh, and it uh, and was a partnership, and it was a subtle partnership, too, because it, it wasn't like Lennon McCartney, where, you know, like, one or the other wrote it yeah they actually kind of work together uh on uh, these songs
1: right and now we move on to 1974 their third album on the border which we've spoken quite a bit of already yes but uh we'll continue uh and 1974 enter don felder as the third guitarist and enter the eagles transition into being a full-on rock band with a capital r this is, the al- yep, this is the album that gained back the commercial momentum that Desperado inexplicably lost, uh, especially when uh, Best of My Love became the band's number one first number one song in the U.S. pop chart. As far as dreamy, sentimental, slightly corny love songs go, Best of My Love is unparalleled in its sheer shimmering beauty. Country rock ballads don't get more blissful than Best of My Love, Eat Your Heart Out, Graham Parsons. I've already spoken about Old 55, the title track, Good Day in Hell, and James Dean. How about the rampaging classic rock radio staple, Already Gone? Yep, More than Take It Easy and more than Lion Eyes, this is arguably the definitive Glenn Frey song and encapsulates his, for better or worse, macho rebel spirit than anything else in the band's discography oh yeah anyone for anyone who questions whether the eagles rocked this album is exhibit a to the contrary
0: yeah absolutely now this album is it's it's a transitional record and there's a lot of interesting stories about uh, about this record so like you said it's uh don felder's uh first uh uh presence or appearance uh, with this band. Uh, he became an official member, even though he only played on two songs. We've said that it mm-hmm. was just a kind of a happy accident that they were looking for uh, a slide player to come yeah. onto the record. Um, and it's like, Hey, wow. And so now we've got this song already gone and he comes in and he just does his kick ass thing there. And like you said, it's like one of their most rocking songs. It's uh by definitely had, it was their most energetic, uh, most furious uh, song up to that, uh, uh, up to that point, but it was a ready-made hit uh, as well. Yeah. Now, the other thing to note about this record is that they made a transition in producers. Uh, the first two records, uh, we should mention were, uh, uh, produced by Glenn Johns. Now that name might sound familiar to a lot of folks that, uh, Glenn Johns, was involved and had a seat uh, in some pretty cool things. Uh, he uh, either engineer, worked as an engineer or as a producer with The Who on Who's Next, uh, with The Rolling Stones on several of their records. Uh, I think he worked with The Beatles on a couple of records. Uh, he Led Zeppelin. Zeppelin. He worked with Floyd. I believe he, uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I believe he co- uh, co-produced uh, The Dark Side of the Moon. And so he's, he's this, you know, he's this stodgy British, you know, he's, he's an engineer's engineer and he knows his rock, but there are a couple of things that, uh, and this goes to Fry's, uh, combative spirit. Uh, so John's had a rule, uh, that n- you were not allowed to do drugs in his studio. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these guys are sort of rollicking, you know, country rock, uh, young dudes from LA, uh, that wasn't going to sit well with most of them. Uh, and so, yeah, they would, they would break these rules, but then, you know, John's is like, okay, you know, these guys, Oh, they wrote some really good songs here. You know, he was a big fan of the country rock stuff, but so you've get the personal tension between at least him and fry. Then we get into this record where, you know, fry is now saying, you know, I want to be more of a rock band I want a third guitarist in the band. He's got Felder, and he's got this toughest. He's got this tough sound. Well, now you know you've got uh, Glenn Johns, who's you know again this sort of stodgy guy who's been there, done that, worked with all these great bands. And Johns is like, well, you know what? You know this kind of sucks. You guys were good at the country rock thing, but you guys are this. Is, you, you want to do rock and roll? You're not rock and roll. The Who, the Who is rock and roll. And to which I'm sure uh, Henley and Fry were like. Well, yeah, motherfucker, we we know we're not the who we're, we know we're not <laughs> as good as the who. So like just produce our record. You know what? You know, so so basically there was this whole thing. And be, you know, John's insisted that they record in London. And so put all of that together and they end up back in L.A. with Joe Walsh's producer, uh, uh, Bill Schmidt, I, I believe it's called it, it's pronounced Simjik. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Z's and a lot of Y's in that S Z Y M C Z Y K Simjic. <laughs> and, uh, so he comes in and so now you've got a new producer who has, uh, you know, less reliance on echo and sort of engineering mastery. And now you've got this third guitarist. And I think it just, the spirit uh, of this record, it, it sounds like, a band that's in an urgent and important transitional phase. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, totally. This is the transitional record.
0: This is, this is
1: like where they completely changed. Country rock was still there. The country stuff would linger on for another album or so, but this is where the Eagles came out as a full on rock and roll
0: band. Right. Which is ironic by the way, because it's weird. Like you talked about the best of my love, which is an incredible song, but it really doesn't fit the rest of this record. It's, yeah. it's it's the last song on the record, but it's like it's not like anything else on the record. It, it's it's deeper and it's more resonant, and it's got this sort of more ballady, kind of wistful thing going on. Where before this, it had been kind of a an edgy, uh, defiant record, and just sort of really, uh, it's a statement record that ends with generally, I guess you could call it a non-statement. It's just a a lovely a lovely ballad.
1: Yeah. We, but I think the album needed this song because it was a little, I love all the rock and stuff, but it, this kind of takes the edge off a little bit. It's kind of the breather you have at the end of a long run. And mm-hmm. I think that's what the uh, best of my love does for on the border.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So. Okay. So right. that, that was the record in transition. And so now we go into 1975 and now you're at a point where they're an established band Uh, They've done three records, uh, two of which were successful. Uh, You know, they've now, uh, I believe they've now won a Grammy. I think Best of My Love uh, Mm -hmm. won won them a Grammy, I believe, or at least were nominated uh, for one. And so now they're stepping up in their ambitions and uh, they're starting to get a better sense of themselves. As I said before, you know, Fry and Henley, uh, they had the confidence as they were developing that as they improved, they wanted to. You know, they were more comfortable with making statements and trying things, and you know, being sort of, you know, in the here and now, and just sort of, uh, you know, finding their place within what was happening in rock and roll. One of these nights uh, is exemplary of that. I think this is where Don Henley really starts to step up uh, yeah. to to be the uh, to be the uh, shining star of this band. Uh, love this record. Um, yeah. I don't, it's, I would it's just below great. But other than that, this, there is some marvelous stuff on this record. So one of these nights, as we've said, uh, it's disco rock, uh, three or four years before anybody was doing this. this is two, this is two years before the Bee Gees fully embraced, uh, disco. Uh, and so, you know, really, you know, sort of working with that. There's more, there's some experimentation with some, uh, some electronicized drums and then, there's also some four-four uh, stuff in here too, and so now they're getting even. They're getting more confident in their songwriting in the sense of okay, now let's step into like sort of traditional four-four waltzy uh, kind of stuff. Take it to the limit is yeah. is the most indicative of that. Uh, probably their good bu- their best and last goodbye to country, really is Lion Eyes which is just a marvelous song. And it's, again, it's like that light, sweet misogyny that Fry was, was really gifted at. I mean, basically it's, it's him, uh, sitting at a bar looking at some chick that he obviously thinks is, is, is married, uh, you know, like getting ready to cheat on the husband. And so it's like an indictment of the girl I wish I could have, but somebody else is having and oh yeah, by the way, I also can just tell by I'm looking at her that she's cheating. (laughs) <laughs> um so there's that. And then yeah. uh and then like I said before, uh Prague Bluegrass, uh yeah. Journey of the Sorcerer. Uh this is a Bernie Leiden six and a half minute uh instrumental uh where it's it's this sort of like really kind of cinematic, um almost ELO uh like uh kind of uh, little romantic uh instrumental, but almost like something out of sci-fi. Uh, actually uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, the radio. there was a BBC uh, serial uh, radio program uh, and the uh, the theme music was Journey of the Sorcerer. And so this is kind of, uh, we said that Bernie Ledin uh, left a piece of shit at the end of this record. But to me, this is the funnest and the coolest thing that he ever did for the group. That this, the, again, Prague Bluegrass, who knew?
1: Yeah. I mean, while one of these th- this is not the most consistently brilliant album in no. the eagles catalog however this is it's a nine track album and it has four or five of the best songs in the band's entire catalog correct uh, i already waxed poetically about the pioneering rock disco fusion of the title track which went to number 1 and was one of three us pop chart top 10 hits on this album one of the other ones Take It to the Limit is Randy Meisner's single greatest moment as a vocalist and co-writer. Subtly orchestrated so the strings don't suffocate the song's immaculate chord progression and heavenly vocal harmonies. Take It to the Limit is a triumphant, lush ballad of the highest order. The transcendent brilliance of it is underscored by the lyrics, where supposedly Meisner but with a lot of help from Fry and Henley, (laughs) uh, it really was a co-write. He he manages to make the notion of living life to the fullest actually sad and almost despairing, knowing that there is a limit to this life on the fast lane. That sense of despair is clearly evident in Meisner's heroic vocal performance. I can go on about this song because it's not only my favorite Eagles song of all time, but also one of my personal go-to karaoke songs, or in Korea, as we say, (laughs) Norebang. Yeah. Other great tracks, like you mentioned, Lion Eyes. That is the band's last great classic country rock song. Uh, Meisner pops up again and teams up with Don Felder to co-write a twangy, swampy groove monster in Too Many Hands. And Glenn Frey proves that he did indeed have a sensitive side with his end of romance uh after the thrill is gone a beautiful which is a, track that which is. is a
0: great song yeah yeah so, yeah for sure yeah
1: so this, this is uh not not a great album for as a whole but an album that has a handful of truly timelessly great songs and it is the end of both Bernie Ledden and Randy Meisner's time
0: in the band no not not quite Randy Meisner did stick around for one more record was uh, he yes. Meister,
1: He was. Oh yeah, he yeah. was in Hotel California. Yes, I'm wrong. Yes, I'm wrong. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He yeah. He, <laughs> he actually he actually did make it uh, yeah. uh, a couple more years after this. It's it's funny you talk about take it to the limit. I love the song too. I think it's really tender and it's it's the saddest <laughs> song about taking to the limit you can imagine.
1: So we go from taking it to the limit to continually to live life on the fast lane. Finally, alas, we get to the Hotel California album from 1976, exit Bernie Ledin, enter Joe Walsh as a new guitarist, and the stage is set for Walsh to have that classic dueling guitar solo with Don Felder at the end of the all-time classic song, Hotel California. The album of the same name is not only undoubtedly one of the greatest albums ever made, Seriously, anyone who disagrees is just a stupid hater. Mm -hmm. But it's also one of the defining albums of the era and a pop cultural milestone. It's also brimming with top-notch songs. Glenn Fry's New Kid in Town is unabashedly poppy soft rock. But when it's done this skillfully and it's this insanely catchy, who cares? Uh, A particularly uh, interesting fingering exercise – that Joe Walsh used to warm up with serves as the gangly riff to the cruising groover life in the fast lane. We already discussed the last resort and victim of love and enough has been said and written about the album's title track that it's up there with Led Zeppelin's stairway to heaven and Leonard Skynyrd's Freebird as one of classic rock's most ubiquitous songs. The only thing I'm going to add is that, uh, no, it is not about the end of the world no, it is not about many of the things that many people throughout the years have built myth about or what this song is really about. No, it's just Don Henley's commentary on how living uh, the, the quote unquote American dreams for a lot of people in the, in, this, in the country is a disguise for the American nightmare that is its true underbelly as Henley uh, embellishes on in the documentary History of the Eagles.
0: Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. So uh, this was the first album I ever owned on CD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mother in uh, Christmas of 1991, uh, she uh, bought me this boom box that had a CD player. I'd never had a CD uh, player before. And the first two, C- well, the first CD she bought me was Hotel California by the Eagles. So this is a special record for me. Um, you know, as you said, it was Joe Walsh's first uh, foray into the band. It immediately makes a uh, 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 dividends uh, here. So let's, we, I guess we should talk about, well, two songs that I want to talk about. Uh, First off, Hotel California, Uh, Don Felder. uh, So this comes out of, you know, he would, you know, he was one of these, he was almost like kind of the neglected child who really wanted to please the parent. And so, you know, he would make these demo reels going in where he would come up with these sort of 16, 17, 18 concepts. They were more concepts than songs. And so he came up with the bones to uh, Hotel California, the um, the that riff, the um, the the sort of the uh, the twelve string, the, the double, uh, uh, whatever they call that, you know, the, the two guitar sort of uh, uh, twelve string um, uh, riff uh, with the tempo and the basic structure uh, of the song. I've always said that all of us, every one of us, including you and me, Arturo. We have uh, either a uh, an inspired like riff, or just motif, or an inspired like just sort of hook, or a three minute pop song. All mm-hmm. of us have right. one of those moments of genius in us, and this was Felder's, uh, and so he comes up with this. Uh, I've seen Henley in other interviews refer to it as Mexican reggae <laughs> uh, you know, vibe uh, to it, and so it has this kind of uh, dream logic feel to it. It's got this kind of woozy uh, dream kind of uh, uh, feel. It's almost, it gives you a feeling of inertia. And I think Henley and Fry built on that with that imagery. And we say American dream versus American nightmare. I think that it lyrically, it it is kind of conveyed in in dream logic, in that kind of dream logic uh, framework of this idea of this kind of, uh, weird idea of the the normal guy. It's, it almost makes me think of like class warfare too. It's like, you know, you know, these guys that were just kind of, you know, the poor guys that five years earlier were struggling to make 250 bucks a week. And now they're like partying in Beverly Hills.
2: Hmm.
0: And so like what happens when like the hillbilly walks into like the posh party with like all the drugs and all the orgies and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, really compelling, uh, there, the other thing to talk about on that song is that Joe Walsh actually wrote the double arpeggio part, uh, mm-hmm. that the, the double solo, which to me is better than anything Dickie Betts ever did. Um, <laughs> and that's a bold statement, you know, and again, this, I think, you know, Walsh, you know, obviously had done a lot of great things before, uh, this, that was his finest moment. I mean, that is just a genius piece of, um, of just arrangement and, uh, and playing and just the sort of, uh, the, the, the intensity of that, the depth of feeling of that is just incredible. Uh, the other song that I've loved, uh, always loved on this record is pretty much the only one we haven't talked about, which is wasted time.
1: Oh yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. Just
0: beautiful, beautiful song. And it kind of goes into the same. And well, I'll talk about this and then I'll make a larger point. It's it's, it's, related a little bit to hotel California in the sense of, uh, what, how, what happens when the dream becomes the nightmare and how do you go on? And so this is just one of these, uh, it's a pre breakup breakup song Mm. and this sort of this idea of, uh, Henley and this woman that he's been in a relationship with being on different pages. And so what happens? And so it's just this gorgeous melody, uh, wonderful lyric, um, I think it's one of Henley's finest moments, you know, in the non commentary on America category, just sort of just pure feeling and pure love song and pure sentiment, romantic sentiment. I think it's one of his finest moments, tremendous, uh, tremendous lyric, um, before we move on. So we said earlier that Desperado is a concept album about, uh, about stepping into the uh, to the shoes and to the feelings of the outlaws this has been misconstrued as a concept record over the years because of a lot of the themes of being you know LA being a drag and you know uh, you know facing all of these certain you know the trappings of, of stardom or the uh, oh shit's about to get real because we just turned 30 uh, kind of stuff and so it yeah. gets this but it's not re- it's not a concept record but it does have a theme there's a difference a record with a prevailing theme versus a concept record. Uh, and I think one of the reasons it's done is because hotel California is such a genius, such a masterful song and such a ride in and of itself. You know, Mm. we kind of want to think of the rest of it as fitting in. Yeah, but that's not really the case. And so I talk a lot about, I'm, I'm talking a lot about this record because again, I would say if I did an honest top 10 favorite albums of all time, this is this is one of them and so it's yeah. always had a lot of meaning to me and it's ultimately the reason why I don't bag on Don Henley as much as a lot of other folks do because I think that there's just some some genius and just genius lyrics in this thing
1: yeah, my but my but my two older, much older brothers had this album on vinyl. It's one of the vinyl records that I grew up listening to over and over and over again in my brother's bedroom. <laughs> it's, and, it's it's yes. it's DNA. It's it's like DNA at this point for me.
0: Yes, and and thank goodness because you wouldn't be the curmudgeon we all know and love if it hadn't <laughs> been for uh, your brothers, Monty and Leo. So, yeah. uh, God, God bless them.
1: Speaking of curmudgeonly, things get curmudgeonly for the Eagles. Uh, A few years later in 1979 when they released their follow-up to Hotel California, The Long Run. They took a little bit of a break after Hotel California. They needed to. That was a multi-gazillion selling record uh, that had numerous hits. And members of the bands themselves were uh, starting to uh, suffer from the, the drug consequences of being the biggest band in America. And here, Chris is where you and I diverge a bit when it comes to the Eagles. I know you love this record. I think it's actually the weakest of the band's hot streak in the 1970s. The things that people criticize the Eagles for start to show up a little bit here. Wussy, lightweight pop rock? Yep, I Can't Tell You Why probably wins the prize for most obnoxiously wussy Eagles song ever. King's King of Hollywood finds Glenn Fry at his most annoyingly decadent while the lyrics are ostensibly a swipe at creepy sleazy Hollywood executives who exploit women the music couldn't be any more milky toast in its production and delivery yet these are the eagles and at this point henley and fry just could not not write great songs Uh, The title track, The Long Run, is a delectable mid-tempo guitar groover and was another number one hit for the band. Heartache Tonight, co-written with Bob Seger, takes honky-tonk barroom rock and melds it with some heady, new-wave-ish production. It's a strong record with some individually great songs, but you can start to hear the cracks in their armor a little bit. And it isn't surprising that they broke up a year after this album came out.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we diverge only in the sense of now my objective mind, my, my rock critic mind, my writerly mind objectively sees this as their best record. Uh, it's not my favorite record. Uh, and it's not even my second favorite record. My second favorite record is probably one of these nights. Um, but, and I, and I've also come to love Desperado over the years too. I just think this is their best record because one, I think it's the best lineup they had. It's the best band that they had. I think uh, Timothy B. Schmidt uh, coming in. And so Joe Walsh is now on his second record. And so it's like he's now on a a point where he's less showy and less fiery and he's uh, more tasteful now. Timothy B. Schmidt comes in. Uh, he is a more versatile bassist, obviously, because at this point they're starting to play a little bit with, um, they, they toy around a little bit here again with disco. They play around with some soul. Uh, you know, they kind of play along, uh, basically kind of like, like a light, almost, uh, chugging kind of menacing rock with like those shoes, the King of Hollywood, uh, some of those things. And so Schmidt coming in, he's a more versatile bassist, and he can sing. Uh, you know, just a, he, you know, like I said, Henley's an incredible singer, like you said, the long run, very soulful, uh, very soulful, uh, vocal there, but Schmidt just could sing. He's just a very pretty voice. And, you know, he, he's like, he was like a go-to, uh, not surprisingly, if you could re- if you had a really pretty voice in the late seventies in, uh, Los Angeles, you probably showed up on a Steely Dan record. <laughs> uh yeah. You know, Schmidt actually does do some backing vocals, I believe, on like both the Royal Scam and Asia. And he also is uh does he is a backup vocalist on Africa by Toto. And so he's just like one of these like go-to guys. If you need something pretty and if you need something uh professional and proficient, he's your guy. So I think just having him in the band, uh, you know, having Walsh again really trying hard to be a member of this band and not just be Joe Walsh. Uh, Really makes for some good stuff. I think that uh, I think their funniest song is on this record, which is the Greeks don't want no freaks, uh, which is funny because a couple of guys in the fraternity I was in at Syracuse University loved this song. And I don't think they ever realized it was really a a song about us (laughs) 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 and and really just basically bagging on just how like awful we were. Uh, yeah. collectively, uh, yeah. in the, in the Greek system. Uh, so, and then the disco strangler, which is just sort of a funny, uh, idea of, of, uh, we hate disco so much. We're going to get a song about a serial killer out of it, uh, with, you know, Felder experimenting again with this sort of, uh, you could tell he was probably digging, uh, uh, ch- uh chic at the time and digging yeah. now Rogers. And so this is a white boy from Jacksonville, Florida, trying to do his best impression of now Rogers, <laughs> and so that's funny in and of itself. And so they're funniest songs, uh, some really poignant songs. Uh, the only thing that you could call exuberant on this record is Heartache Tonight. Yeah. And, and it's one of those, it, it's 10 songs. Like you said, at this point, they're burned out. They're not liking each other. They're doing too much drugs. They've lost, they've lost some confidence, actually. Uh yeah. you know, Fry talks about it in that documentary about how in 1978, you know, Henley and Fry would get together a lot of the days in the year and a half that they made this record and not do anything because they just didn't they couldn't get on the same page or they just didn't quite know what to do. And so
1: how do you follow up Hotel California?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, basically. Uh, but they did it really well. And so they it took them a long time, but they came up with a very strong 10 song set recorded very well, played very well, sung very well. One thing they never did is they never lost the harmonies and the harmonies got better. Actually, the harmonies on this album are better than the harmonies on uh, Eagles, uh, the first record. And so, again, just a very professional record, very clean record, uh, very consistent record, uh, ends with the Sad Cafe, which I love. Uh, It's probably, it's one of their better songs. Uh, I mean, I J.D. Souther co-wrote it, uh, but even so, it's, it's still uh, really strong. Strange But True, Bob Seeger actually uh, co-wrote Heartache Tonight. Uh, that's what I was going to say. They were struggling so much. A few of these songs, they needed help getting over the finish line. But I really think that um, it is – I think it's their best record. And one other thing I'll mention about it thematically, uh, it's a very bleak record. You know, it's basically. I think thematically on this one, it's really about the end of something. It's like they're they're sensing that the end is near, and so there's this sort of dread, but there's also this sense of caution and warning and anger. Like you said, ostensibly, uh, Fry is singing about creepy Hollywood executives. I think a Harvey Weinstein.
2: <laughs> <You>
0: know, <laughs> Maybe yeah, and, and that but there's also some songs in there like those shoes is basically hey girls be careful uh out there because there's a lot of the, there's a lot of creeps out here and you know just uh yeah. you know it's 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 really hard to be a young girl out here in hollywood uh and <laughs> there's several songs that that get into that so hmm. uh, i think they they end they end on a strong uh note here but pretty clearly that was going to be it go ahead
1: right it's interesting, Chris, that you say all these nice things about the long run. You know who disagrees
0: with you? Who, 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 who would ever disagree with me on this one?
1: <laughs> Robert Criscow, in his review of the long run, okay. uh, when he was working for the Village Voice, quote, not as country rocky as you might expect. The Eagles, after all, are pros who adapt to the times and they make the music tough. I actually enjoy maybe half of these songs until I come into contact with the conceited, sentimental woman haters who are doing the singing. I mean, these guys think punks are cynical and Hmm. anti-life? These are guys who put down the king of Hollywood because his dick isn't as big as J.D.
0: Souther's. C+. (laughs) Okay, okay. Well, maybe he's got a point, but... Well, like I said so yeah they they were professional woman haters, um but I don't know. I mean, they just again, I just think that if you look at their catalogue and we just went through it and the evolution for they green- were well, hold,
1: hold on as far as far as their misogyny goes, it's not nearly as bad as many artists who are their contemporaries. Well yeah, actually they, 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 they ain't they're, Frank- they're, yeah, yeah they're they're not Frank Zappa, they're not kiss. Yeah. they're not even the stones okay no, no. i mean the, the eagles misogyny actually ranks pretty low compared to a lot of their peers who are admired much more by gen X by uh, um by gen zers and millennials
0: <laughs> yeah and well but the thing is 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 um they, the, yeah i i agree i think you know these guys were just spurned and were just sort of like uh just take you know sort of taking out their frustrations on women, you know, th- as people, whereas like those other guys were like women as like, you know, vaginas.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. So yes, I, I, I do, I do agree with that. And so, so yeah, we've gone through that, this, this incredible evolution through these, uh, these, uh, six records, of uh, a lot of growth. Uh, Don Henley is, uh, is a singer and a non-entity as a songwriter by the end. It's basically his band. Uh, yeah. you know, Glenn Fry throughout never loses his spirit, Uh, they transitioned from, uh, from the banjos and the mandolins to just two kick-ass, uh, uh, you know, professional, like awesome king of the hill guitarists, uh, just really good stuff. And so just briefly, uh, let's just end this with a little bit of an epilogue about what happened after this. Yeah. So they, this album, the long run comes out, this one we just talked about comes out in September of 1979, band is done by the, the middle of 1980, uh, really funny story from that documentary about how Fry and, uh, uh, Felder threatened to kick each other's asses through an entire set. Uh, It was a, it was a benefit. It was a fundraiser for a guy running for Senate named Alan Cranston that, you know, that Felder had said something in the middle of the night that uh, in the middle of the thing that pissed Fry off. And so these guys are threatening to kick each other's asses. So that was the end. Um, but then a thing happened in like 1980 or 1981 called Classic Rock, Classic Rock Radio. And so you have Classic Rock Radio, you have MTV that hit in the early 80s that now give these guys uh, more airtime than they ever had before. And so you have a format basically uh committed to or built around the idea of glorifying the Eagles and glorifying Boston and glorifying Fleetwood Mac, you know? And so, so now, you know, they, they fade away. They think that, you know, we've done our thing. Now we're, we're broken up and we'll be forgotten. No, uh, you'll be more loved than ever before. That's when the greatest hits record takes off. Then MTV comes out and now you know, Henley and Fry are figuring out what to do next. Well, now they get a chance to do MTV. Fry does what Fry does best. He has a lot of fun, steps in and does that song, The Heat Is On, uh, which. which <laughs> and,
1: and, and the Smuggler's Blues.
0: Yeah, Smuggler's Blues, which is a great, great song, which he co wrote with uh, Jack Tempton, who's actually the guy I wrote Already Gone. But uh, The Heat Is On is funny because that's a Harold Faultmeyer song for uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. And, you know, Fry, they called up Fry and said, hey, do you want to come sing this song? And, he came in, yeah. Said, yeah, sure. They paid him fifteen thousand dollars, and lo and behold, the thing became a huge ass hit. And yeah, it, that fifteen thousand basically became, ended up becoming like seven figures. You know. You also had another hit. Another hit with a uh, uh, you, you
1: belong to the city.
0: Yeah, basically, the, the best thing to ever happen to Glenn Frey's, uh solo career was Miami Vice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, basically, and then and then Henley, on the other hand. Uh, he ended up having a lot of success. Again, it was that work ethic of his, uh, he still had a lot to say. He was still developing his voice. And so by the mid eighties, it makes me wonder if this is where the Eagles were going to go. He gets poppy and he mm-hmm. comes up again with the boys of summer, which is, you know, a, a really amazing, uh, rock and roll or like a classic rock radio, uh, single. Uh, and then he also, you know, has songs like all you want to do all, all she wants to do is dance uh, there's Not Enough Love in the World, uh, Dirty Laundry, you know, and just sort of a lot of it is sort of self-serious. And that's the other thing, you know, Mojo Nixon writes Don Henley must die. Why? Because Henley was so self-serious, but he was brilliant. And, you know, Fry could step on MTV and be a, a star right away. Henley had to actually like work at it like he had no idea. Remember, he was the, the drummer with his mouth, like the microphone was practically in his mouth. And he Mm -hmm. had the beard, and he was kind of the ugly guy in the back. Now he okay. oh, okay. How am I supposed to be the handsome guy up front? Had no idea, and so it took it took a lot of work. But anyway, so classic rock radio, you get MTV, and then a decade later, lo and behold, you've got baby boomers who grew up, you know, they were contemporaries, knew and loved all those songs, who now one had a lot of money, and two. Had children who had inherited their parents' love for the Eagles. So in the early '90s, lo and behold, uh, there was a um, there's a, a tribute record, a, a, a covers record that comes out that is a fundraiser for uh, Henley's charity, Walden Woods, which is you know basically uh, save Henry David Thoreau's woods and raising money mm-hmm. for that. And it's a bunch of country artists doing Eagles uh, songs. It sells so well that they basically all said, Holy shit. You know, there's, there's an audience here. There's a market here. And, and they basically became the first band that started the uh, what now is basically a cottage injury, uh, a cottage uh, industry for like greatest hits, ne- never ending greatest hits tours. Uh, mm. And so the Eagles uh, did that. And so that was basically the rest of uh, their lives was basically uh, making money off of celebrating themselves. Okay, so here's something we have not done in about five months, folks. Uh, As part of our fourth Golden Age of Rock uh, series, we wanted to go so deep that we uh, sacrificed one of our favorite segments and hopefully one of yours. uh, We call it the vault. And one of our rationales was that the fourth Golden Age was one gigantic vault. Well, heck, uh, the Eagles, okay, they have a vault, but they're not they're not gigantically vault-ish, <laughs> so so lo and behold, we are bringing back the vault. So welcome everybody back to the vault, uh, in which both of us we have an extensive vault in our. Uh, basically, we have great, great big basements that have great big wall safes that we can just walk and crawl into and like you know crawl through all the gold and pull out uh, beloved albums that we have accumulated over the course of our lives. Uh, we're approaching decade five, so the, 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 the vaults are very deep. And so we're going uh, back into them uh, this, uh, this week. And it's interesting because we both have chosen albums that came out in our adulthood. Uh, yes. You know, and so they're relatively recent uh, entries uh, in our vaults. So uh, Arturo, what are you taking out of the vault? And what, are, what, what, what old, uh, oldie and goodie are you talking about this week?
1: All right. So if I mention a French duo singing or start doing electronic music in the 1990s, most people will say doffed punk. <laughs> However, yes, there was another French duo doing electronic music in the late 1990s, and they went by the name of Air. Nicolas Godin and Jean-Benoit Dunkel met at an architecture college in Versailles, France, in the late 1980s, and played in several bands together before they embarked on their duo project in 1995, named Air. After they put out their first EP, uh, Premier Symptome, First Symptoms in English in 1997, their French record label, uh, Source, with greater distribution through Virgin Records, urged them to put out a full-length album, air happily obliged with Moon Safari. The album Moon Safari emerged in early 1998 to widespread critical acclaim, and huge commercial success, not only in their native France, but throughout the UK and Europe as well. The album even made noise in the notoriously fickle EDM Underground in America, where it sold 300,000 copies. So, what was the fuss all about? Generally speaking, Moon Safari takes the, the spacey lounge pop of mid-90s Stereolab and slows it way the hell down. But there's more to this album than that. In fact, it is a pioneering album in the down tempo and chill-out subgenres of Electronica that would become prominent in the next century. There's a non-ironic romanticism and a sweeping melodic beauty to all 10 tracks that range from addictive mid-tempo EDM grooves. To lushly orchestrated 1960s to 70s easy listening pop. Sexy Boy is the album's best known track with its subtly propulsive, sultry groove and glittery atmospherics, plus an awesome bass line that the rock band Muse would uh, lift for their song <laughs> Plug In Baby a few years later. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's also Se Matin La which shimmers with an ethereal beauty unlike anything else in pop music at the time and is driven home with a tastefully decadent trumpet melody and lovely string arrangement. The opening track, La Femme D'Argent" oozes a laid-back sexuality with its loping bassline and interweaving coil of electric piano and psychedelic synthesizer. Essentially, it is cosmic porno music, in the best possible sense. Oh, absolutely. Uh, air would continue making music into the early 2010s, but subsequent albums by them kind of ring hollow to me of too much pink Floyd worship, particularly with their 2000 soundtrack to the film, the Virgin suicides. Nevertheless, Moon Safari casts a tall shadow over the duo's discography, and justifiably so. It's not only one of the best electronic music albums of all time, it may very well be one of the best purely pop albums ever.
0: Chris? Yeah, this album is phenomenal. Uh, They uh, just had this knack. They just had this sexiness to them, and they just had this uh, compositional panache that a lot of their peers just didn't. I think that they right, just right. like, you know, they could just like just squeeze the sensuality of what they were doing uh, right. just remarkably well. I'm actually a fan of their two thousand four record, talk talkie walkie uh yeah no, that's
1: okay it's got its moments it's yeah, got its moments.
0: surfing on a rocket mike mills uh, some of those songs I'm, I'm a huge fan of that record as well actually i think in some records uh, in some senses that is a better bedroom record than this one like you said this is mm-hmm. like lounge this is a very loungy uh kind of uh sultry record whereas that one was sort of more intimately so you want to talk about french softcore porn that's talkie walkie this one I don't know. It's, it's more, again, it's, it's a sensual, sexy, groovy uh, record. And these guys are just very, very creative. And Mm -hmm. so, so my pick, it's not one that most people would think I would pull out. And it's Mm -hmm. something that a lot of folks probably don't remember. Uh, I like to think of this album as one of the great quote unquote lost hip hop albums of all time. Um, and to this day, it came out in 2003. It's, one of the most fascinating hip hop records I think ever made. And one of the, it's basically one of my favorite records. And I'm talking about this album called Mississippi, the album uh, by a rapper named David banner. And so here's Banner's story. He is a guy named Lavelle crump uh, grew up in Mississippi. Uh, so as deep South as it gets, uh, but he is very bright. Um, yeah, grew up in poverty, probably messed around like a lot of these other guys in the Dirty South did, but uh, found his way to Southern University uh, to get a degree, I believe, in business and uh, did some grad work at the University of Maryland. Well, him and a buddy of his that he grew up with in Mississippi, they formed uh, a duo uh, called Crooked Lettuce, uh, and they got some had some modest uh, success. They weren't a very good group together at that point, but Banner had a knack. He, he had an ear. He was a pretty good producer. Like he, he was one of those guys that could take cheap drums and some synths and put something together pretty compelling. And so Crooked Letters doesn't really work out. Now it's back to the drawing board. Banner is now, he's a hustler. He's a businessman. He's hardworking kid. Uh, He keeps working on his, his uh, craft as a producer. And he comes up with this sound, which is in that vein of the Little John and the other Dirty South producers of uh, that era, but his is a little bit more clever. Uh, his is a little bit more uh, subtly melodic. It, in some ways, it's more fun and it's funnier, uh, but it's also more varied. And mm-hmm. so he gets this opportunity to do this to do an album, his you know his own solo record. And so out comes Mississippi, the album. Now I said that this is one of the most fascinating uh, hip hop records I've ever heard. Uh, heard here. Here's why. So he calls himself David Banner for a reason. Uh, it's the idea of don't you know? Don't make me angry, or you won't like what you see. You know, it's the old um, right. You know, from it, the
1: incre- from the Incredible Hulk TV show, the early eighties. Yeah. Yes. and
0: if we're talking yeah. about yeah, we're talking about the Incredible Hulk, and we're talking about uh, uh, the the human form of the incredible hope. And so the concept is don't make me angry. And so what is it that makes me angry? Uh, essentially it's the, uh, it's the condition of the, uh, of the black uh, community. And so he kind of sets this up in the first track. Uh, it's the, it's the most profound and poignant use of the term. Fuck you, suck a dick, die bitch. Uh, in, <laughs> in popular music history. And mm-hmm. so he sets this up. So the first, five or six songs on this it's a standard dirty south record you know it's it's filthy mouth it's dirty there's a song called like a pimp which is a which is a tremendous which is a really really funny and fun cool uh kind of strip club uh, uh anthem uh he's got a song on there called "Fuck 'Em," which has this like wonderful little uh horn uh beat but it's But in in his voice, he's got this growl and he's, he, he's got the filthiest mouth, I think, in the history of, of hip hop, one of them. And he's doing all this. And so at, for the first third of the record, it's just the standard dirty South kind of, you know, like in your face, more well done than, than others, but, you know, but it's standard thing. And then this magical thing happens about a third, about 40% of the way through the record all of a sudden you get this song, the title song called Mississippi. And now the, uh, the cheap drum beats and the, uh, the sort of the energy and the more clicheic dirty South stuff has now been replaced by acoustic guitar, slower tempos, uh, more sort of, you know, ethereal uh, uh, keyboardish uh, stuff going in the back. And now all of a sudden it gets this sort of serious tone of, why exactly is he called David Banner? It's the condition of blacks for generations and centuries in the deep South. Uh, And he starts, you know, getting heavy, this idea of, of Mississippi, uh, you know, being this place where, you know, we're, you know, we're the blackest. We understand the black experience better than anybody else. Uh, There's, there's a couple of great lines uh, in that record um, or in that song where he, he talks about uh, you know we from a place where the rebel flag still ain't burning new schools, but the black kids still ain't learning about shit. Uh, and so this sort of, you know, it becomes the social commentary uh, with some singing. There's another song on it called Cadillacs on 22s, which is about the fallacy of being like ghetto fabulous when you're actually still stuck in the ghetto. And mm-hmm. you're just, you know, it's just sort of, you know basically fucking around and destroying your community uh there are some political songs on there uh one obviously called bush you remember this was 2003 where he actually at the end of the song says uh, calls bush the n-word and then he Mm -hmm. actually chimes in and says that's right i called you an n you know and uh, (laughs) and so it, it it takes on this sort of it's it's poignant it's deep it's an, it, it, again, you, you think it's just standard and then it comes out of nowhere and becomes like the equivalent of a hip hop blues record. And, uh, just, it was just an extraordinary accomplishment. Uh, like he, on the strength of the singles, you know, like a pimp and Cadillac on 22s, he was able to do a few more records. He had a few more big hits after that, uh, you know, produced some hits, and you know he's still around. He's not making much music now, but he does uh, motivational speaking. He, does, he runs several businesses, and so uh, he is, you know, the epitome. He's an entrepreneur, but he's also a guy that you thought he was just being a cynical, you know, dirty mouth, foul, you know, idiot, dirty South rapper. But it turns out the guy had a whole lot to say. And he was very subtle and very sort of deep in how, and surprising in how he did it. And so that's a long way of saying, check out this record. It is, uh, you, you may not want to make it through the first five songs because it is pretty repugnant and hilariously so. It's like the most hilarious swearing you'll ever hear. But stick with it. It becomes absolutely transcendent if you stick with it. So Mississippi the album, highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, uh, this album, you might be wondering, why is this in the vault of the curmudgeon rock report? Well, um, it really should be part of the parallel vault, if you want to talk about it that way. Because in a parallel universe, where mainstream hip-hop radio is much better than it is in our universe, mm-hmm. uh, this album would have been a much bigger hit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't that commercially successful. It got some good word-of-mouth buzz from some music critics but uh, it got largely forgotten, yeah. um, especially a few years after it came out, which is a shame. This, I, I, I don't love it as much as you do, Chris, but I do think it's a really strong record. Um, yeah, I agree. I like after track five is when I get into this record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, when, that's when I start getting into it because of the lyricism, because of the really interesting beats um, that he gets in there as well.
0: We've come to the end of episode 40. Wow. Wow we are 40 <laughs> yeah we are, we are now 40 episodes in to uh the history of the curmudgeon rock report uh this is uh hey, you know what the heck it's been a good year and a half uh we don't suck nearly as much as we used to uh and this is one of the joys of of my life so are you feeling our eagles love or are you not be sure to drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and let us know And definitely join us in two weeks for part one of a two-episode analysis of the studio albums of The Grateful Dead. Because, damn it, it wasn't all just about the live shows. Uh, They had some pretty incredible uh, studio albums as well. I'm partial to Blues for Allah, and I'm sure Arturo will uh, give all of his love to American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. Uh, Until next time, folks, uh, enjoy uh, your lives and keep rocking on in this uh, increasingly not-so-free world. Be well.